The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name's Anne and I work for Lymphoma Action and I'm delighted to be joined today by Emma Forbes. Emma's going to talk about her experience of supporting her sister who has a diagnosis of lymphoma. Emma, can we start at the beginning describing the relationship with your sister Sarah and how you felt when the, you heard the news of her diagnosis? Basically, my sister and I, it, it was during COVID in 2020, and my sister and I were in constant contact um, because I live in America, she lives in England, so we'd been in constant touch. And I was aware that she hadn't been feeling great, but she was a very always a super healthy person, six years older than me. I'm 55, she's 61. She'd never had anything. She's never had an operation. She's always been super healthy. And I got a, you know, I got a sense from her that she wasn't feeling great, but because it was COVID, I thought maybe it was COVID. You know, she felt a bit under the weather. She'd been to the doctor. They thought maybe it was a virus. She'd had this weird itching. Um, and it wasn't really until she said to me, there was one conversation I had with her, I guess, that made my ears prick up a bit more, which was when she said that she had been unbelievably breathless and that she found it hard to get to the top of her staircase. And more importantly, she felt it really hard. She couldn't pick up her grandson, Billy, without feeling really breathless. And I thought, gosh, that's really not her, if you like. That just didn't sound like her. But never in my wildest dreams did I um, think that that would be the diagnosis. She was basically sent to a specialist um, in order to see if it was long-term COVID or if it was a chest infection or what it was. And that basically led to her being taken in to have fluid drained, a lot of fluid around her lungs and a CAT scan that showed this huge lymphoma tumor. And it happened very, very fast. I mean, you have to love the medical service because when they need to go into action, they do, and, and they did. Um, and she rang my husband, not me, because I think she couldn't face telling me. And I, I just sort of knew when my husband walked in the room, I could tell by the look on his face, I knew something wasn't right. And I sort of knew it was to do with her because we'd been speaking. Um, and he told me, and I think, you know, like anybody else, I think my my world fell apart and I, I just felt hugely far away because obviously had I been in England, had it not been COVID, I would have probably been at the specialist with her. Mm. And I think what initially broke my heart more than anything was to just not have physically been there um, and then not to be able to be there. Mm. Um, yeah, very difficult. When you heard that it was a diagnosis of lymphoma, did you do, as a journalist and researcher, did you find that you did a lot of research on the topic? If I'm totally honest, I didn't know anything really about, I'm ashamed to say I didn't really know anything about lymphoma. And, and, and now, you know, now I know it's like the fifth most, you know, prevalent cancer and, and, and all these facts. And I didn't, and it's when I actually found your charity because what I didn't want to do, and my sister was very adamant, was that we didn't just Google and go down that rabbit hole because I think whilst Google can be so incredible, 
and we're so fortunate to have that in our high-tech modern lives when it comes to illness if you really start examining those things and going down the wrong routes which is easy to do so I basically googled where do I find information and support on lymphoma and your charity came up and that was where I found out the facts about it because I wanted to just know the facts about it, not the fear about it. I just wanted to know what kind of cancer it was. And I think that's when we then went into, I would say every diagnosis is in stages because we didn't know if it was Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's. And I, you know, so we were like taking it every step of the way of what type of lymphoma it was. And, and then the fact that it was treatable, I think, that really struck me as well, because I still think there is a stigma around cancer where you, you hear a cancer diagnosis and you think of it as terminal. It's just human nature. You just kind of go to the worst case scenario. And I think, you know, I was very pleased to, you know, and happy, oh my God, and relieved to see that it was treatable, curable and, and manageable. And that was, those were the three words that really mattered to me more than anything. And thinking about the other members of your family, because I, I know you're, your mother is probably very anxious as well. Do you find that you're having to support your other members of your family like your mum? Yes, I think I feel a bit like that. Um, I'm the sort of middleman. So um, as I say, it was during COVID. So my nephew very sweetly drove down to see my mother and I, I told her with him, but sort of over FaceTime so that I was in the room. He was there with her telling her and... I was there as the backup and I set up a little group WhatsApp between my sister's three grown-up children and myself so that we had a sort of, and my two kids, so that we had a sort of little separate family group to have our own questions and worries with and, and checking in with. Um, but I very much saw my role, I guess, as sort of placating my mother who is of the age where it terrifies her and she doesn't understand a lot about it and being the support for my sister and being there for her in whatever shape or form she dictated. You know, you previously mentioned taking a lead from Sarah in terms of what she wanted to know and being there in whichever way she wanted. Was this difficult for you? Or did it feel quite a natural thing? It's funny, really. I thought it would feel more difficult than it did. It actually it funnily enough helped me her sort of setting out how she wanted it to go. It was actually a sort of help because I, I think like all those things, there are certain subjects in life that you, that, that when people don't know what to say, they sort of say the, not the wrong things, but they say things with well meaning and good intention, but you don't really know how to handle it. So it becomes like the elephant in the room. And actually by her being quite adamant in the beginning of how she wanted it to be. She was like, I don't want to Google it. I don't want to hear other people's stories. Mm. I want to just focus on getting better. And I don't want to cross question the doctors. I don't want to, I really like him and I trust him and I just want to do it and do the treatment. And, and so the minute she said to me, I love my doctor, I was like, how great. Mm. Oh, lucky. That's brilliant. I love him too then. <laughs> I love him. And then she'd say, you know, I had the loveliest nurse today. And I'd be like, oh, we love her. That's great. She, you know, so I, I very much just took it on that. And actually, in a funny way, it made it easier for me because it defined my role. You, you both live a long way apart. I mean, you live in America and your sister lives in the UK. What 
sort of support do you wish you could give that you can't because of that distance? I think about that a lot because to be honest, if I if it if it hadn't have happened in COVID, if it was in any other circumstance, I would have given her the support of I would probably have moved in with her each time she had treatment. Um, if I'm honest, I would have stayed with her and you know watched the Netflix movies or or made dinner or got tea and toast or done whatever it was, and I would have gone with her if I could have done to appointments and I would have been there when she'd heard the news and things like that so I guess it's a it's a physical thing because I can give support long distance but it's physically being there I long you know to be there I hate the thought that you know if she feels like eating something I can't be there to make it for her or you know just just that really just somebody you know company mm. I guess I miss giving her physical company I mean, you two are clearly very close. Where do you find that you get your strength and resilience at this time from? I've had to dig deep. I have to say my own children have been amazing because I guess for them, um, it's the first, you know, they were much younger when my dad died. So they, they, their memories of that, they were much younger. So I, I had to sort of support them through that. So this is the first, I guess, sort of family illness or something big that we've had to cope with like that and they they're 21 and 24 and they've been an amazing support to me actually which has been great my husband has been a support too because he's the kind of practical one he's the sort of the the, the feet on the ground person so I, I have found company in that but I have to say I relished having being able to read more about it through your information and just sort of gathering that because again even as a supporter of my sister I found that everybody basically just wants to offload their story of a cancer adventure to you and I think that the one thing I've learned is that everybody's cancer is unique everybody's journey is different everybody's treatment is different everybody's chemo is different um so i guess i've just found my strength by just really sticking close to 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 my family and and finding that sort of support from outside but but in the right measured doses of of, of finding it where i felt it was it was a good support if that makes sense and when things feel a little bit raw and a little bit overwhelming do you have any particular strategies that you adopt to help you yeah I guess I've tried I've tried lots of things I've tried a lot of visualization I'm quite into alternative medicine and and that's always been my thing and my sister would always you know sort of say that I am the person I'm very open to it so it's not that I don't believe in in all things all forms of medicine but for me I've tried to I've tried to utilize some of those things so I've tried to use visualization techniques and, and meditation or you know taking some sort of time out to go for a long dog walk things that are kind of just a little snatched moment of normality I guess it's wanting to just crave a little bit of normality or when life wasn't like that so I try and do that in a little bit of escapism and doing that and, and I guess when she was first diagnosed I thought do I just put my my work and my life on hold because that's what you feel like doing you feel like just pressing the pause button um but actually I have found that for me it was like I reached out to you at lymphoma action I was like I want to do something I want to feel I'm a real doer and a fixer and I thought I want to feel like I am doing something during this that I can 
put it out there that I can do something and keep working and 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 be part of a support group or be a voice so for me that was an important I guess part of my own therapy mm. to keep together yeah one of the things that we hear from people that call the helpline is that you know if they're caring for somebody with lymphoma if they go out and have a lovely time or enjoy a, a lovely walk they sort of sometimes feel a little bit guilty afterwards and I wonder whether that resonated with you as well yeah it did and I think I think that is so true and I think you know weirdly because it happened in Covid there wasn't we talked about it a lot there wasn't um there wasn't anything to do like that so actually that decision was sort of taken away from me but I did think about it I thought gosh if I'd have been going on holiday for instance would I have felt like going on holiday would I have felt quite bad for going on a holiday and I think the type of person I am I would have done I would have felt quite guilty for that and and that wouldn't have come from my sister but I know that I would have felt that and then I think for me the bit I felt most awful about was when she lost her hair and she again it's very unique to people I've had friends who don't lose all their hair or it thins or whatever but she lost her hair even by the nurse's standards remarkably quickly it fell out literally after the first treatment and I felt really guilty because her hair was always her big talking point I mean she had huge like a massive lion's mane of hair and she was that person you know those people that always twizzle it up with like a a huge bulldog clip or a pencil swizzled in it and when she talked she always used her hair and the joke always was that I change my hair every two minutes I'm very indifferent to my hair I chop it off the color changes nobody ever knows if it's going to be blonde or what I, I'm experimentation I don't feel like that and I felt it was so unjust that out of the two of us that the person that whose hair really mattered and so when it first dropped out I wore a beanie with her I just said, I will wear a beanie until you don't, until you get a wig or you don't feel like that about it. So every time I spoke to her, I always had a hat on. I just hid my hair. I just didn't, um, I didn't show it to her on FaceTime. I just thought, we'll just be in this together. We'll just unite. And until you get a wig. And now she's got a wig. And so if she's got the wig on, I take the hat off. And I'm like, okay, now we've got hair. And, and actually, as time goes on, it's, it's interesting how you see it evolve. I see her weirdly more without the wig and the beanie on than I do with the wig, because then you realize that actually the wig is kind of irritating. You know, it's sort of, it's so dependent on people, but I did, I felt very bad and I felt particularly bad about the hair. And it sounds like, you know, from what you're explaining, it sounds like you have a lot of fun together. And do you take the lead from her in terms of what mood she's in on a particular day, whether it's appropriate to have a giggle together? or whether it's a more serious day, or, or is that not the way it works between the two of you? It does, it does work like that. I've completely taken her lead. She has a really good sense of humor. We've both got quite a wicked sense of humor and quite a dark sense of humor. And so I've taken her lead on that a lot because there have been some funny moments in very dark moments. And her first two doses of chemotherapy, which actually I don't think she spoke about because I think they sort of blur, but the first treatment she had um, literally came hours after she'd had an anesthetic to put the port in. And so she, I think she felt very sick. She'd never had an anesthetic. So she felt very sick from the anesthetic and then she had chemo. So she was pretty poorly after the first treatment. And then after the second treatment, she had um, this sort of heart blip thing where her heart started racing and 
And it was a bit dramatic, if I'm honest. And so when she went in for the third one, I, she said, oh, you know, I'm going, I said, can we just have a, can we just have a normal chemo today? And she said, what do you mean? I said, can we just have one without like the heart? The thing. And so we have, so sometimes, I, and she properly laughed. She was like, oh, you mean, I said, could we just have a bog standard chemo? Could you just go in, have it and come home? I don't want a phone call saying that something, she laughed. And so I, sometimes I can pick the moment and other times I'm just completely led by her. And I would say that, you know, right now I'm very much led by her because I think it's a real roller coaster halfway through treatment. I think it's quite a, you know, I guess one more reflect and kind of go everybody, maybe everybody feels like that halfway through, but she's really just going through all the feelings of things at the moment of, of the sort of the what ifs and am I always going to have this hanging over me? And, you know, when chemo's done, is it really done? Is it, is it this, is it that? And, and, and feelings of anger or, you know, really missing holding her grandchildren and stuff like that. So at the moment, I very much just go with her on that. I try to be a cheer up, but not annoying. You know how sometimes when you're feeling down, it's actually really irritating to have somebody sort of cracking a joke or trying to make you go, yeah, but you know, sun shining and this, and, and I'm like, I, I, I'm not that person. I mean, mm. I did make her laugh in that when we were growing up, if we ever had a sort of love trauma, our mother used to say to us, I'll pay for you to get your hair done as like this treat. And I did say to her the other day, I can't even offer you to get your hair done. And she did laugh at that. I mean, you can find your moment, you know what I mean? Because there are things where you have to laugh about it because it's, it's so awful. You've got to have a laugh about it. But um, I'm very much, I very much just go with her flow. And because we're a five hour time difference away, I wake up to her text and I can judge how that's going to go. And I think you mentioned to me earlier that um, you've been sending parcels to her. And I wonder whether you could share a bit about that. What inspired you to do it? I think the reason I, I got inspired to do it, A, because I was far away and I felt helpless. And because I couldn't physically be there, I thought I've got to find a way of doing something that's a cheer up or that shows that I am there. So the first thing I did, which sounds so cheesy, but when she first got diagnosed, when we were little, we used to have these things called pet rocks that we loved. And they were literally, I mean, it was, whoever did that was a genius, but they were these rocks that were just at your pet. <laughs> and I, I lived near the beach and I went and I found a big rock and a little rock and I drew little faces on them. And on the back, I put you and me, I'm the little sister. So I was the little rock and I put them in a little bag and I wrapped them up and I sent them and I said, take the rocks with you when you go anywhere. And then I'm always with you. And she takes them for treatment. So I sent that and then I thought actually, and people were being so incredibly kind. You know, she's got friends that are dropping off home cooked meals and, and everybody was doing lovely things. I thought I've got to do something that bit's covered because that would normally be my role. I'd be the soup maker. So I thought that's covered. I need to think of something better. And if I do little weekly parcels, there's something to look forward to. And she knows they're coming and I send them on the same day each week. And so I started just finding things and I put in a little bit of things that are helpful like I've noticed that the, the big things she suffers from a dry mouth and so I found everything from like lollipops to chewing gum for a dry mouth or you know a particular flavoured sweet and then she hates the metal taste in her mouth and she used to love licorice so I found this really salty licorice and I sent her that and then I found her funny colouring books where you colour in swear words and I said this is something to do 
whilst having the chemo. Um, and then I've become my new obsession was then to find clothes that had easy port access was our sort of go to thing because she was like, you don't want to. It's difficult with the port. You have to have things. She said, I don't want to look at it, but I need access to it. So I managed to sort of find sweaters with a slash neck or, you know, I don't know, just funny things like that. So I send her. It varies every week. I mean, I've just sent her today's um, parcel and I put in it, there was some more lolly, a different lollipop that I found I thought she might like because the lollipops were popular. Um, there was a book that I thought she'd like to read and it wasn't a sort of a self-help book either. I mean, I find books on people or things like that. And then I send her, yeah, just bits and pieces. And, and sometimes they're... Sometimes they're gifts that project forward, like a T-shirt going when we're on holiday, you can wear this. So that I try and vary it because I found that it was quite hard to find things that if you, if you Google presents for somebody with cancer, I found that with the best will in the world, they, they still reminded somebody that they were ill. And I didn't want to send her ill presents because she's vibrant and she's still that person. And my sister has embraced tie-dye when it was in fashion the last time and has continued through it. And I thought, actually, I want to make the beanies neon pink and tie-dye t-shirts and stuff because you don't want to suddenly feel that everything has a kind of beige tone to it. Mm, I love the idea. And, uh, you know, it, it gives you something to do. It's a talking point. Yeah. It sounds like it's a source of joy. I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a it's a good talking point. But you're right; it gives me a mission from afar, mm. and and it makes me feel good. And I walk to the FedEx office, and I stomp there with the dog on the lead because it's walking distance, and I feel a great sense of like, okay, that's this week's parcel. Then I'm like, oh, on to the next, you know. And I and I like doing that, and I think that it's really given me something to do and I think if somebody is at home having treatment having a little bit of the outside world brought in you know a funny photograph we found hilarious pictures of each other as children and I sent one the other day saying it's such a happy picture of her and I look like this incredibly pensive it's like such a serious picture of me and I you know sent it to her and she said it's because you've got really awful shoes look at your shoes that's why you look miserable and so we laugh about just stupid things like that and I put in funny photos and things mm -hmm. and I think that that's something you can really do as a as a member of the family is you can do that my sister and I are hugely different she's an incredible cook and she eats a really well-balanced diet she's one of those amazing cooks that can always you know she was hugely social and so all of her kids always were the she was always the person that had a house overflowing with kids and she could make a kind of risotto for 10 at the drop of a hat and I was always the kind of known as the you know the healthy sister and the green juice and, and it's really opened my eyes and I think when she got sick she was aware that you know she said to me you know I wonder what I should eat and you know and you're so healthy and I said no I it, you know I think I think eating what you fancy will be good. I said, but ask your doctor. And I was really um, encouraged and surprised, actually, because because of where her lymphoma was. He said, for the first bit, I don't want you to eat dairy. And that was a big deal for her because she loves dairy. But I think it's really important that people know that it isn't. It's just the luck of the draw. It's not, you know, you can be the healthiest person in the world and get 
something like this and you mustn't beat yourself up and I think there is a responsibility out there with with media to not make people feel bad if they're not eating the right things we all try and we're really lucky we live in a world where there's much more available but you know I think she's gone on the flow that you know she is trying to eat more iron because he's told her she's low in iron so you know she is eating green soup and if I was there I'd be making her green soup my niece is making her green soup but equally if she feels like having marmite on toast and a cup of tea that's what she has and I, I, I and I think that's really important and I think as a family member whatever your view is you mustn't impart that on the patient you must let them have their journey on that too their culinary journey because who are we to say I had no idea that chemo gave you this awful metallic taste where food tastes so weird you know mm. if you'd have told me that when Sarah was having chemo the one thing she'd feel like eating was a curry I'd go you mad do you really feel like eating a curry but she does because it tastes better than the metallic taste so I think I've learned a lot in terms of just trying to just be a support and kind of go whatever it takes you know you must go on that in terms of looking up information and so on I know your sister was keen not to and I know that you haven't done it extensively but you have looked on our website for example do you find that you're having to hold your tongue when not share things or are you tending to share information with her as she goes down this lymphoma experience I think because I as I say I found your website I think and I sort of she she once asked me she said have you googled it and I that's when I told her about you I said actually I found this website that I think is really good and I think because I vetted it if you know what I mean I sort of I said I I think it's really good and I've you know looked at it and there's good information and I think there was a comfort in that so the answer is we have shared more information because she was just as lacking in knowledge on lymphoma as I was I mean we, we literally had no idea I think as she said you know for a start you can't believe you can have tumors that big that you don't physically see on the outside I think when we talk about other cancers breast cancer it's a lump or skin cancer is visual and lymphoma because it's a blood cancer you don't see it and I think we didn't know about the different variants and the stuff that I've learned from you about the stages not meaning the same thing in lymphoma as they do in other things. So actually I have imparted that to her and I've sort of done it where I felt it, it's sort of come up naturally if, 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 you know, or she's asked me or we've sort of shared it together, but it's been as a comfort and a support rather than Googling something where you then get fearful. Can I ask you, Emma, if you had one piece of advice to share with somebody um, going through a similar situation to yourself what would that be when I found out her diagnosis there was was a huge element to me that just wanted to just put my life on hold and I felt guilty and I thought oh my god it's awful and as I said when she lost her hair I just thought oh my god life is so unjust and all the rest of it but I think that you know what you need as a as a as a member of the family taking care of somebody is you need to be pretty strong yourself like if you're if you go down with them it's it, you're actually of no help and and it is more depressing for them because they then have to take on the worry that they're seeing you fall apart because their life isn't good and I realized that actually that's not what my sister needs she doesn't need me crumbling in a heap and and you know not eating and staying up all night with angst and worry 
you know, I need to be really strong so that I can see her not only through it, but out the other side. And so I think for family members, it is really important to have somewhere that they can go to for, you know, online help or a helpline and speak to somebody, but also to be reminded that it's okay to feel all the feelings that you're feeling and that it's okay to still have a good time or, you know, do something for yourself and, and, you know, I can go and get, the first time I had my hair, you know, coloured after Sarah lost her hair, I felt terrible. And she, I avoided her phone calls that day. I'm not going to lie. I avoided her phone calls. And then when I spoke to her, she was like, did you have your hair done today? It looks great. And I thought, actually, she doesn't mind. You know, and it's those little hurdles that you realise actually life does have to go on. And if we stop our lives, that makes them think that their life isn't going on because we're we're all in it together and we're all going down together. So I think it's finding that balance between being supportive and a sympathetic ear for them, but realizing that you have to continue yourself and you've got to, you, you've got to find the strength to go on and, and still maintain a semblance of normal life, even though you've had a curveball. I think for me, it's made me, you know, it's made me not sweat the small stuff. And I know that sounds so cliched, but I think, you know, I was, I've always been by nature, quite an anxious person, despite appearances, you know, I'm quite a worrier and I'm a bit, what if, but maybe, you know, I can be that person. And I think there's that, that, you know, a cancer diagnosis makes you go, okay, I need to sort of cut through that. So I've found joy in the much smaller things. I mean, I'm so grateful. It's such an overly used word in the wrong way sometimes but I am so grateful for the smaller things in in life you know I'm so grateful to have a lovely dog walk on a sunny day I'm really grateful if I you know have a moment where I'm with both my kids which you know is rare when they're grown up and they're not at home I'm like I really enjoy that time and I try to really be in that moment again I think Covid brought about an enforced um you know, time where people had time. And I think we were all, and I, you know, particularly me living in New York, it's a fast paced life. And it's, it's made me now realize that time is precious. Time gives me joy. It's nice to have time just to do something, you know, just to do something for oneself and whether that's taking time out to read a book or go for a walk, or in my case, I find cooking really de-stressing. So I go and, you know, if it's a stressful day and Sarah's having her chemo, I bake for nobody. Um, I just bake, you know, and then I think, okay, I've now baked three banana breads. And so it's made me do more things. There's a there's a, an elderly man that lives near me that my daughter works with. He, do, he, he sews all her amazing dresses. And so I cook for him. I've cooked for him so much because he's like, oh, okay, be baking again. I mean, I don't think he probably knows my reasons behind it, but there's things like that that I've done that have given me real joy. And I guess it's a wake up call. It makes you be more joyful about things that perhaps one took for granted. Can I ask you what's inspired you to share your experience? I think everybody was in shock and I think one mustn't underestimate the shock. And I think shock goes into a feeling where you think, I sort of want to close this down and just stay in this bubble, our bubble. And there's a funny thing where hearing about other people's bubbles, you almost don't want to, it's like you don't want to hear the good or the bad. It's like you think, oh my God, but what if I'm not the person that had a really successful chemo and didn't lose their hair and, and felt better three months later and blah, blah, blah. Or 
I don't want to hear the, the bad one either, like where somebody didn't make it. So I think initially we were both in that slight, I guess it's shock and denial. And, and in order to deal with it, you have to sort of close the family doors. And that's how I would have described it. And then I think as time went on, because of social media and because of like the job I do and my assistant, we were so, both of us, blown away by the kindness of strangers. And I know that sounds really weird, but there's something about, particularly for my sister, I think she, she told me she was awake one night and I think she was on Instagram and this woman, you know, cropped up and said, I've, I've had lymphoma. And Sarah said, oh, I'm awake at 3.30 in the morning. And they started this conversation. And Sarah talks about it a lot. She goes, gosh, I've got the most amazing friendship with somebody I've never met. <laughs> and she offered a comfort that actually I recognize none of us could because actually it's a different thing. It's not me saying, oh, I've got a friend, you know, who had lymphoma and she's kind of blah, 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 because I, I saw the difference between that and the support of people who have actually gone through it or actually got the same thing who aren't your family so you can kind of go I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning and I'm angry and I'm it's got it it's, it takes it one step away so I think I then spoke to her and said you know are you happy if I talk about it I then said to her you know I want to find somewhere that's like a really good support and find out more information and she supported me on that and then I said to her, are you okay if I talk about it? So we kept it as an open. She said, no, no, I want it to be open. I don't want it to be secret. And then, you know, when I approached you guys, I was like, well, is there any way that I can help? Because I felt like it would help if I could just give back in some way or support or offer any kind of help. And when I spoke to my sister, she was like, well, I'm really happy to do that too. And I thought, oh my God, well then, and so then we sort of shared it. Now the floodgates are open because now we're both like, actually, it does help. It does help to have the support. It does help to have a, a group, a place to go, a good source of information. And, and so I think it was just that it was a very evolving journey. It had to start there and end up here. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.